Last time we were in Hebrews, we were at a key transitional point in the book. For most of our study, minus two weeks ago, we have been reading and studying about the supremacy of Christ, about how Jesus is better, better than what? Better than, than any and everything else. He is God's supreme form of revelation. He's better than prophets, better than angels, better than Moses, better than Joshua. And for the past few months, we have also been learning about the fact that Jesus is also better than Abraham and Levi and Aaron and all of those Levitical priests from the household of Aaron. He is our great high priest from a superior priesthood and is associated with a superior covenant. Two weeks ago, we were in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, and at the beginning of that passage, we see the word therefore signaling to us that a transition is taking place. And in the text to follow, we saw that the author shifted focus from theology to practice. For nine and a half chapters, the author of Hebrews has laid the theological foundation for the supremacy of Christ and has gone to great lengths to show why Jesus is supreme. In our passage we looked at last time, we studied the author's transition from the theological to the practical, and we said after sharing about these incredible, lofty, glorious truths about who Jesus is and what he's done for, for us, the author of Hebrews moves from the mountaintop of those glorious truths to the blacktop streets of where we live. He moves from the, from the heavenlies to the streets to show us how we are to walk, how we are to live in light of these glorious truths. If you have your Bibles, turn back to Hebrews chapter 10. This week, instead of talking more about how we are to live in light of the person and work of Christ, we're going to do the opposite because the writer of Hebrews does. We're going to talk about how not to live how not to live in light of what Christ has done. Now, I don't know if you're this way or not, but I'm this way. When I'm putting something together, I like to be given a detailed set of instructions. And I follow those instructions. Just ask Leslie. Exactly. I like instructions that tell me what to do and what not to do. Instructions that say you must do this before you do that with pictures and all the parts numbered or color-coded saying do this, don't ever do that. That's the way I, that's the way I roll. That's, that's the way I put things together. Well, the Bible functions in this way. Oftentimes one after the other. That's what we see in the book of Hebrews. After telling us who Christ is and the great work he has accomplished on our behalf, after telling us how we're to live in light of who Christ is and what he's done, we're told how not to live in light of who Christ is and what he's done. Today, we arrive at another warning passage in the book of Hebrews. We have encountered several of these in our study through this book. This passage is on par with the warning passage that we looked at in Hebrews chapter 6. Very challenging. 
If I were just selecting passages at random to preach from from the book of Hebrews, the passage in chapter 6 and the passage we're going to look at today would not make my top 20, okay? But that's not the way we do things. We don't just select passages at random from a book. Normally we go chapter by chapter, verse by verse. That's the great way, the great thing about preaching in this way is you have to preach what's next in the text and it forces you to deal with challenging passages like this one here. So we're going to deal with it today. This passage is given certain people fits It's not that these two passages, this one here and the one in Hebrews 6, are are all that difficult to translate. It's that they're often misinterpreted. They're interpreted outside of context and disconnected from the rest of Scripture. Don't do that, okay, by the way? Don't pull things out of context and hang it out on nothing. We don't do that with anything. With a book we read, we don't pull out certain passages just hanging out there and say, I think it's going to mean this, right? Don't do that. And also, don't pin verses against one another in Scripture. Interpret Scripture with Scripture. So we're going we're gonna to do that today. The misunderstanding in Hebrews chapter 10 begins with how one interprets verse 26, which is where we're going to start. I want to look at this verse before we break down this passage because this verse is really one of the central themes in this section. The writer of Hebrews says this, For if we... Now notice he's speaking first person again. He's done that before, right? Us, we. He's talking to believers. We've talked about that. If not, if you question that, you have to question whether or not the author is a believer because he often speaks in the first person. He talks about those people, but then he talks about us. We, he says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So when looking at this verse of Scripture, the question we need to first ask is this. What does the author mean when he says sinning deliberately? What's he talking about there? Sinning deliberately in what way? What is meant by deliberate sin? That's an important question to ask within the context of the book of Hebrews. What's the problem the author of Hebrews has been addressing throughout? He's been addressing the problem of faith. Listen, getting this answer right is key to understanding this passage. The deliberate sin the author of Hebrews is warning against is the sin of unbelief, the sin of rejecting Christ, ceasing to believe on Him and on Him alone for salvation, turning away from Him, drifting from Him for good, the sin of apostasy. That has been the author's focus throughout this book, especially with the warning passages. He's writing to Jewish believers who are drifting spiritually. They're being enticed by other competing belief systems and considering re-embracing Old Testament Judaism. Their gaze is turning away from Christ. They're looking beyond Him. They're turning away from Him. The writer of Hebrews is calling for them not to drift. And he calls them believers, brothers, right? He says, don't drift. Don't look away from Christ. Don't Look beyond him, look upon him, consider Jesus. 
continue to look to him and trust in him and believe on him and cling to him and follow hard after him, persevere in the faith. He's going to use that word here in just a moment. It's very important that we not forget about this context. We're going to miss what he says here. Many have. The author of Hebrews here is not talking about some random habitual sin. It's talked about other places, but not here. Here he is concerned with unbelief. His concern is with those who, who responded favorably to the gospel in some way, not in the true way, maybe joined the church, but after a time turned away, never to return Again, the writer of Hebrews is warning his believing audience about these people and the danger of those who have not truly responded in the proper way to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and have drifted for good. They've turned away for good. Those now trusting in someone or something else. Many of us, we have stories of people like that, don't we? Those who at one time maybe were responding favorably to things and then they just reject it altogether, turn away never to return. How are we to make sense of that? Well, we learn in Scripture. So that should help you a little bit in interpreting the text and where we're going to go. Something else I want you to keep in mind before we get into this, something I've told you before, but something you need to remember here is there is grace in warnings. Remember that. There is grace in warnings. This passage, though pretty harsh, is a gracious message from God through his author here. If we were riding somewhere together, and I was riding in the passenger seat, and I looked over, and you were dozing off to sleep, and I yelled at you, wake up, watch out. I'm pretty sure that you would not respond with, well, that's kind of mean. I don't appreciate your tone. Surely you wouldn't respond like that, right? Hopefully you'd pull over and let me drive. That's the way you would respond or stop and get some coffee. But listen, our passage today has that kind of tone. It's a loving yet serious warning. The writer is telling his readers, wake up. Don't drift. Don't be numbered with the apostates. Don't be like them in any way. Those who turn away never to return. Continue to look to Jesus, trusting in Him alone for salvation. Some of us need to hear this because some of us need to wake up today. We need to wake up in this way. And listen, it is by God's amazing grace we have these warnings here. He doesn't have to give us that. But in His goodness, He chooses to give us these warnings and we should praise Him for it and we should respond appropriately to these things. So receive this message this morning in humility, with gratitude and praise, believers. It's our tendency sometimes to just bow up when we hear messages like this. What do you mean examine myself? It's the way we respond, right? We just explain these things away. Oh, that's not for me. That's not for me to listen to. And so we just skip it and move on. Don't do that. Listen and receive it. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to share with you several things that we are not to do in light of what God has done for us through his son Jesus. Here's the first thing. Do not continue in deliberate sin. It could also be said in this way. You can write this down as well. Do not continue in unbelief. 
Can you have questions at times? Can you doubt? Yes. God has to, we, we need God's help working in us to, to work through those doubts that we have, right? But we can have some doubts, but don't continue in unbelief. Don't follow in the footsteps of the apostates. You can write that down too. Look again at Hebrews 10, 26. The writer of Hebrews says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. In other words, if one continues in unbelief, if one rejects Christ completely, there are eternal consequences. Again, he is warning against the deliberate sin of unbelief that his audience was being tempted with. They were being tempted to turn away from Christ. Competing belief systems were, were drawing their gaze away from him. The writer of Hebrews is warning those in his audience of the path of the apostates. Those who are with God's people, but not of God's people. Remember, John talks about them in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. Notice, they didn't lose their salvation. They never had it to begin with. That's what he's saying. John says, they were with us, but they were not of us. The writer of Hebrews says at the end of verse 26, there is no sacrifice for sins for those people. We, we have learned in this study, we're in need of a perfect priest who offers a one-time, single, perfect sacrifice for our sin, right? And that perfect priest is Jesus, and the perfect substitute in sacrifice is his own life. The author of Hebrews is saying, if you do not trust in him, if you have rejected the only one who can take care of your sin problem, you have rejected the only sacrifice that you can have for your sin. That will satisfy God's wrath set against you. He says, you do not have a sacrifice for sin without Jesus. Notice what you get instead. Look at verse 27. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Yikes, right? That is a stern warning here. He says, those who deliberately reject Christ, turn from him never to return, have nothing but judgment to look forward to. They are numbered with God's adversaries. They will be consumed with fire. Harsh, but absolutely true. Now, we're a modern people, right? And, and our modern minds oftentimes begin to think because we're, we're, we praise men, we look at the goodness of man, we're sympathetic to man's condition. We say, how can God be that way? How can God be a good God and judge people and find some people guilty and condemn people to hell forever? If that's your mindset, if you're, you're thinking like that, here's what I want you to do. If, if this is your line of thinking, Ask yourself this question. Who is informing my idea of God? Where'd you get that view? Listen, if you're one who says, God cannot be like that, not my God. My God would not find people guilty and condemn them to hell. Then I would argue that your idea of God is not being informed by the scriptures because the scriptures say the opposite of that. Your view of God is being 
formed by what sinful humanity thinks. Of course, sinners are going to cater to sinners. They're going to be sympathetic to the sin condition. Because we're not righteous, right? Not like God is righteous. That's why we think that God should turn a blind eye to sin. But that is not the picture that we get from Scripture. Scripture is clear that our God is a holy God, a righteous and wrathful God. He is opposed to sin. He takes sin seriously. We saw that just a minute ago in verse 27. We learn those who reject Christ are God's adversaries. You know what that word means? His enemies, right? Hostile to God. His enemies. God views sin seriously, treats sin seriously, goes to great lengths to conquer sin and the great consequence that comes with sin. He sent his son to die, to conquer sin and death through his death and resurrection. You want to know how seriously God treats sin? Look at the cross. It was the will of the father to crush his son, we're told in Isaiah. Because of sin. We need Jesus, don't we? That's why we need him. And so the writer of Hebrews is warning those in his audience to not drift down the path of the apostates. Don't be numbered with them. Continue to trust. Continue to believe. Don't drift. Cling to Jesus. Follow him. Let's keep going. For those who think it's out of character for God to respond in this way, to those who reject Christ, he just goes on. Look at verses 28 and 29. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? So he's taking them back to the old Levitical system once again. The old Mosaic Covenant. He is using their knowledge of the old system to make the case for God's severe punishment toward those who reject His Son. He is reminding them of the punishment for deliberately rejecting God's law under the old covenant. It could be punished by death, physical death, right? That could be a consequence. He, 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 that's what he means when he says anyone who has set aside the law of Moses, dies. Those who deliberately reject the laws of the old system could be punished by being put to death. Now remember, the writer of Hebrews has been talking about the fact that the old system was flawed. It showed man his sin and need for salvation, but could not provide the solution, right? If rejecting the older, flawed system brought about death in a physical sense, how much worse will the punishment be for the one who rejects the true Savior and the system that can actually accomplish our salvation? That's what he's saying. Ligon Duncan said this about this verse. Look at this quote up on the screen. The greater mercy of the new covenant carries with it a greater judgment when it is rejected. Very true. That's what he's saying. That's why the writer is saying what he's saying here. He's saying the penalty for rejecting God's law 
Get this, the penalty for rejecting God's law does not hold a candle to the penalty for rejecting God's son. Rejecting God's law carries with it the consequence of physical death, but rejecting God's son carries with it the consequence of spiritual death, also known as the second death, judgment, hell. And again, for those of you all that think this is severe, just look at what we do when we reject Christ. He says they, they who do that, they trample underfoot the Son of God. Boy, that's serious, isn't it? They throw dirt on the gospel. They stomp on Christ's person and work. They also profane. They show little value for the blood of the covenant, which is a major mistake because only through Christ's blood are we cleansed of sin. That's why we sing about the blood. Only through trusting in the person and work of Christ alone for salvation is one forgiven of sin and, and restored to God. Now, some get all bent out of shape over that phrase, by which he was sanctified. You see that there? They, they believe that teaches one can be saved in the process of sanctification and lose their salvation. That is not what the author is talking about here. And one of the reasons we know that, one of the main reasons is because of what we talked about earlier, because of the rest of Scripture and what is taught in the rest of Scripture. Al Mohler in his commentary on Hebrews, commenting on this verse, explaining the proper way to interpret difficult passages of Scripture like this one here, says this. Look at this. Mark this down. This is good. The next quote there, Al Mohler. There it is. We must seek to understand the Bible's difficult parts by reference to its clearer parts. As the Reformers taught us, Scripture interprets Scripture. Say that with me. Scripture interprets Scripture. Difficult passages become clearer when we set them within the context of the entire canon. May we interpret Scripture in this way. When we do that, we find... God clearly teaches in his word that God's people are secure and God's people endure. The Bible teaches both. Teaches that God's people are those types of people who are safe and secure, held by the Father, held by the Son, sealed by the Spirit. But he also teaches that God's people are those types of people who keep trusting, keep believing, keep following. They persevere to the end. Do they fall down? Of course they do. But they're messed up about messing up and, and they keep trusting, keep following, and keep pursuing godliness. In this passage, the writer of Hebrews is talking about a people who have responded favorably to favorable parts of the gospel. Read the parable of the sower. You'll have more of an understanding of, of who he's talking about here. But they have not responded in faith to the true Christ and to God's true gospel he's talking about those who are numbered with god's people but are not of god's people they have been set apart from the world to an extent by being associated with Christ's church but are not in christ have not been sealed by the spirit they have not trusted in christ alone for salvation have not been changed from the inside out are not a part of god's kingdom people i don't know what other way to put it they're outside the faith which insults the Holy Spirit, by the way. That's what we're told next. 
We're told the one who has rejected Christ has outraged. A better translation is insulted. That's what that word means. Insulted the spirit of grace. Think about it. The Holy Spirit's work is to apply the finished work of Christ to the believer. So rejecting Christ is rejecting that special, that essential work that the Spirit came to do. It's an insult toward Him and His work to reject the Son. It's a serious offense. Let's keep reading. Look at verses 30 and 31. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Those are a few references again from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy and Isaiah. Again, the author is using the Old Testament because he's speaking to a Jewish audience and he's showing his readers that God has been, is, and will always be a holy and righteous and wrathful God. All the way back to the beginning, the very beginning, Genesis, right? But he talks about Deuteronomy here, one of the most quoted Old Testament books in the New Testament. In Deuteronomy... We're told that God promised to repay wickedness with his vengeance. He is the one who will judge his people. And it's a scary thing to fall into the hands of the living God and be found guilty. Many fail to understand that. They fail to grasp that. They reject that, but they're wrong. And if they fail to repent, they will experience that firsthand. And again, the writer of Hebrews is is warning the believers. He's he's writing to, pleading with them to not go down that path at all, the path of the apostate. He's telling them their end, the apostate's end, is judgment. Their only escape on that great and terrible day is Christ and his righteousness that he provides to all of those who place their faith alone in him alone, and they've rejected that. So he's giving them a warning here. So that's point number one. (laughs) That's a a lengthy point, right? We'll get moving on the next. We needed to camp out on that one. Do not continue in deliberate sin. Do not continue in unbelief. Do not follow the apostates down their path. Number two, second thing we're not to do in light of what Christ has done is do not throw away your confidence. Skip down to verse 35. Look at what the writer says. He says just that. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. And the verses that precede this verse, in verses 32 through 34, tell us a bit more about the confidence that they're not to throw away. Look at these verses. Verse 32, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. So notice here some personal things about this group of believers here in this passage. This group of people had suffered for Christ. You see that? Though they were struggling 
when he wrote this letter spiritually, the author of Hebrews, they had endured persecution. They stood strong. They had endured. He says, think about the former days, the early days, when you first heard this message of the gospel. After being enlightened, you responded to the gospel. He says, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. You were publicly insulted and assaulted. You and your fellow believers, many of you were locked up, and the rest had compassion on those who were in prison. Your property had been plundered, taken, destroyed, and notice how they responded. You accepted it with joy. Wow. Have any of y'all been through that and responded in that way? How is that possible? How could they accept it with joy? They had been through hard struggle with sufferings, publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Many of them were put in prison. Their property was plundered, yet they accepted it with joy. How? He tells us. You yourselves knew you had a better possession and an abiding one. They were able to endure suffering and accepted the plundering of their possessions with joy because their confidence was not in their physical health and in their earthly possessions, but their eternal inheritance. This is a solid group of Christ's followers here, right? who provide for us a wonderful example of how to suffer well. And the writer of Hebrews writes to remind them of this and says, don't throw away your confidence that you had that carries with it great reward. What a wonderful example that the author of Hebrews provides for us when we're dealing with believers who are drifting. He, he takes them back to the former days when they were representing Christ well, living faithfully, suffering joyfully. And he says, you know why you're able to do that? Your focus was on the right thing. Your hope was properly placed. Your priorities were in order. Your eyes were on the eternal. Your, your heart's desire was the glory of God. At times, that needs to be where we go, believers. I passed this message on a while back. To a brother who was struggling I knew him well I reminded him of his former days of faithfulness urged him to turn from sin forsake sin consider Jesus look to him trust in him believe in him follow hard after him and finish well that's the way we need to apply this here who's someone in your life you need to encourage in this way you're going to have an opportunity this week as you go through your study guide, you're going to be given that challenge to think of someone you know who's drifting, who's, who's struggling and speak into their life for this reason, for his or her sake spiritually and for the glory of God. So that's the, the second way we should not respond in light of what Christ has done. We should not throw away our confidence. He says, don't continue in unbelief. Do not throw away your Confidence. Number three, do not shrink back, but instead persevere in the faith. Do not shrink back, but instead persevere in the faith. That's what we need to do in response to what Christ has done. Look at verse 36. For you have need of endurance. They had need of endurance. That word endurance is an important word. It means this. It means, to get this, to have the capacity to continue to bear up 
under difficult circumstances. That's what that word means. In the Greek, it means to have the capacity to continue to bear up under difficult circumstances. It's a very, very important word, and that's what he's calling for here. He's saying you guys need to continue to persevere, to continue to trust, continue to believe, continue to follow art after Jesus, just like you had done before, regardless of your difficult circumstances. And how can they do that? He's going to give them uh, uh, some ways to do that. End of verse 36. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So he has already addressed the fact that this group had been through a lot. And the reason why they're able to endure and stand strong, the reason why they're able to accept hardships with joy is because their confidence was not in their physical health and in their earthly possessions, but their eternal inheritance. And here the author is calling for them to be strong once again. And the motivation that he is providing for them is the same that they had before. He says, you remember that hope you had and an eternal inheritance and an abiding inheritance through a relationship with Christ. That is still yours. Therefore, keep trusting, keep believing, keep enduring so that you will receive and enjoy that Forever, that which is yours in Christ. So that's the first way the author motivates his audience to persevere, reminding them of that inheritance that awaits him and awaits them. And for any of y'all that have an issue with being motivated by eternal riches, Christ talked about it. He talked about what was going to be his disciples. And we're also told in Hebrews that for the joy set before Christ, what did he do? endured the cross was that not his motivation to be christ-like that needs to be our motivation so that's the first way the author motivates his audience to persevere is by reminding them of the inheritance that awaits them the second motivation of the lord's return is found in verses 37 and 38 let's look at it for yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not Delay. Notice here in verse 37, he's taking his audience back once again to the Old Testament, this time to the book of Habakkuk chapter 2, and is reminding them that the Lord is returning just like the prophets of old promised. Scripture is clear that we are called as believers to be living today in light of that day when Christ returns. We're to have an eternal perspective. We're to lift our gaze up above the storms of this life and look to Christ who is returning for sure. He is returning for those trusting in him alone for salvation. Therefore, keep trusting in him. Don't look away from him. Don't look beyond him. Don't drift from him, but trust in him until he returns. Notice what else we're told to do. Look at verse 38. My righteous one shall live by faith. Underline that. Live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So there's a warning again. How are we to live in light of what Christ has done? How are we to live in a dark and dead world and let our light shine bright when tough times come and not lose hope when life around us seems to give way? We are to, how are we to persevere? We're to do it by faith. The righteous live by faith. Listen, you begin the Christian life by faith 
And you continue your Christian life by faith. That's how it works. We're saved by faith. We live by faith. So here the, the author of Hebrews gives us great counsel on how to not shrink back so that one can endure and persevere. We must look to and long for, believers, what awaits us in glory rather than our hope being tied to the things of this world. We must live in light of Jesus' return, and we must do it by faith. And this is an inward work that the Spirit of God does in us that we work out. The Spirit of God awakened us to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, for salvation, and he gives us grace that we need to live by faith. Notice how the author ends. I love this. Look at verse 39. He says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. Boy, isn't that good? But of those who have faith and preserve their souls. I love this. We've seen this again. On the hills of this great warning passage, we have a great word of assurance by the author here. He does this throughout this book. He says, believers, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. Now, has he changed his focus? It's the same audience, right? We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. That is not in our DNA, believers. We are committed Christ followers who live by faith and persevere. So at the beginning, he gives a warning. He says, don't be like the apostates. Don't follow down the path of the apostates. And here he says, we're not like the apostates. We, we are not like those who shrink back. We are those who persevere. That's how true believers respond when times get tough. They do not shrink back. They are not destroyed. They have faith and they persevere. Maybe you're here this morning, you're trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, but you're in a dark, difficult place right now. You feel like giving up. I want to pass along to you comforting words from the author. I want to encourage you to lift your gaze up above the storms of this life. I want to encourage you to set your focus on what awaits you in glory. I want to encourage you to live by faith in light of Christ's return. I want to remind you that we as believers, we are not like those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are of those who have faith and persevere. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. You've not laid hold of this great work of salvation that Christ accomplished on your behalf. If I'm speaking to you, listen, this can be your hope this morning. You can have an unwavering hope in the midst of despair. It's not easy for believers. Don't believe anyone who says it is. It's not. But you can have an unwavering hope in the midst of despair, lasting joy in the midst of sadness through faith alone in Christ alone by forsaking your sin and bowing your knee to King Jesus. Have you made that decision? If not, now's the time today. Let's pray.